I don't often um, honor my parents before a Dharma talk because probably like many of you, um, there's so many complex strands that have expressed themselves in family relationships. Um, Tonight I wanted to honor them. And what came to me as I was sitting down was a conversation that I had with a student in Boston. The the queer sangha there was organizing an umbrella group for queer sanghas along the East Coast. Are you hearing a ring? I'm hearing a kind of ring. The Davis are joining us. <laughs> a little bit down. So, um, and um, they were talking about the organizing committee, and I said, um, you know, do you have any people of color in your organizing committee? And um, he said, no. And I said, I'm not, I don't think it's a good idea for you to continue without first building a multicultural organizing committee. And he said to me, you know, I don't like that you're imposing your socialist principles on me. <laughs> And and I I have to honor my parents because in many ways they communicated to me growing up in South Africa a vision of possibility that when I was growing up in the 1950s, the apartheid structure felt immutable. It felt as though it was impossible to transform. The military was so organized, and the um, secret service was so permeated into the resistance movement that by the 1960s, it in some ways felt as though everything had been destroyed. My parents were in jail, most of the leaders were in jail, or they were um, so underground you couldn't communicate with them, or they were overseas and, uh, you know, the internet wasn't like it is now. And it, it just felt almost like impossible. And... And there was in that impossibility this living somehow vision of possibility. And it actually isn't about being socialist, although socialism can be an expression of that. It actually is a reflection of the capacity of our human heart and its resilience in 
all the wide diversity of conditions of life that we find ourselves in. And so much about our practice is this remembering of this vision of possibility of holding and transforming conditions. So at sound check, because I notice you like this, how's your hearing? So-so. Could we have it like a tiny bit louder? Maybe I could move my thing up a little bit. Should I move it up a bit? So all of that is then to um, um, call into being the poem that Mandela took from Marion Williamson. Our greatest fear is not that we are inadequate. It is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light and not our darkness that most frightens us. You may ask yourself, who are you to be gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God, or we could say Dharma, and your playing small does not serve the world. That magnificence really is the expression of a small thread that kept pulling, I I imagine, through all those 27 years that Mandela was in prison, that just kept pulling and pulling from the tightness of being small, of getting lost in the challenges, and pulling and pulling in the same way that we feel pulled to come into our magnificence. And that is what the Buddha also is calling us to, this possibility that we can come into the full magnificence of our being. There's um, a rabbi, Abraham Heschel, who says, and this is really an amazing vision, just to live is holy. To be is a blessing. That just makes me cry. (coughs) Just to live is holy. To be is a blessing. And that makes me cry, and probably some of us, because in saying it, we are not denying the places of profound grief and suffering in our lives, but rather we are opening to them, that this holy and this magnificence rests on our capacity to open to the deep grief and pain and suffering that we have carried with us up to this point. And Actually, it isn't just that we carry it. It is that we turn towards it. The Buddha said that our liberation into this magnificence actually rests on us turning towards our suffering and our grief and our pain. 
And I, I think of the Sufi saying, like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart and therefore endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain and you are called upon to meet it. Some of our teachers actually embody both this holding and this holiness of life. And the one that comes to my mind is Deepama, who many of you have heard of. This very small, she was four foot eight or nine, very small woman who's um, who was married at 12 and went to Burma with her husband and ended up actually really falling in love with him. One of the deepest griefs of their marriage was that she couldn't give birth. And in that culture, it was a huge thing not to give birth and to give your husband a child, particularly a son. She tried and she tried and she tried. And she kept saying to her husband, out of love for her husband, divorce me. You know, you can divorce me. Take another wife because I want you to be happy. And he said, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. And after 20 years, she gave birth and had a son. Later, her husband came home one day from work and said, I'm not feeling well, went to lie down on his bed and died. And soon after, her son died. And she was devastated. And for years, actually lived in her bed, so overwhelmed with grief, that her doctor finally said to her, you are dying. Go and meditate. I can't think of anything else to tell you to do. She was so weak. She actually crawled up the steps of the meditation center of Mahasi Sayadaw and went to meditate. She practiced diligently in the ways that we have been practicing. She turned to face all that was difficult and painful in her life in the same ways that we are turning. There's a book that's been written about her and it speaks to how her heart opened in this turning. Someone said, you know, whenever I saw someone come into Deepama's house, she lived in, um, where did she live? Calcutta. The first thing she would do is to take someone's head and put her hands on someone's head and bless it. That expression of to be is a blessing and I bless you. For each of us to live is a blessing and each one of us 
lives the holy life, has the possibility of living the holy life and blessing that life. That's the journey that Deepama took, that, that capacity to hold pain so much that we are moved to see the holiness of life and to want to bless it all the time. And then just to also enunciate one of the stories that I love so much, which is about Kalu Rinpoche. There are certain stories that live in us as a vision and a mythic dream. And for some reason, this one caught hold of me. And it's when Kalu Rinpoche was visiting the um, aquarium in Boston and went from tank to tank, tapping on the glass and calling the attention of the fish that he might bless them. This expression of meeting the holiness of life with blessing. This capacity that we have, the Buddha said, to hold the suffering of our lives in such a way that life becomes holy and we are moved to bless it over and over again with our presence and with our with our love is our path. Thich Nhat Hanh said, and has said over and over again, the next Buddha is a Sangha. By that I take, not only that we need each other to practice, but actually we need each other as a community to turn towards our pain together and acknowledge it together. Because without this turning and acknowledgement, our hearts can't open. The Buddha said that love and compassion only grow through the turning towards our suffering. And so just as a community, let's acknowledge it Let's acknowledge together what it means to live today where young teenagers in our community are bullied and shamed so much that they would rather die. We can hold that together. What it means in our community to have children whose ancestors have been enslaved from Africa. What it means for us today to live in acknowledgement that there are many here who have been sexually abused as children or as women or who have been raped. Because sometimes we can't hold it alone. We can only hold it together. What it means to live in a culture where truth is rare, where lies from our politicians are more what is spoken. What it means to live in a field 
where truth is mostly not spoken. What it means to live in a field, in a culture, in a community where our magnificence and our dignity is not seen and acknowledged. And I name it because unless we name it as a community, what happens is that we find the results of this reality living inside of us and we think it's some kind of personal failure. We think that there is something wrong with us because we are living with the reality of what it means to live in the world today and what it is meant to live in the world previously. It isn't just in our world. To acknowledge what ignorance, what mistaken understanding has meant for each of us here, sitting here tonight. The Buddha said that we have the capacity to hold this. Thich Nhat Hanh said, together we have the capacity to hold it. That inside each of us there is this pilot light of love and presence that can be awakened through our intention to meet what we find. This path that we're on is the path of remembering over and over again to light this pilot light into a fire of mindfulness and loving kindness and compassion that we might hold what we find. And I'm talking about and I'm talking about this because I am in awe of the depth and resilience of what I find inside of myself and how often what I find inside of myself I mistake as a personal problem and get caught in feeling not good enough or get caught in a comparing mind, or get caught in shame and blame or guilt, when I don't see clearly that these are responses, old responses, to the reality of what we're living in and the tools that were given to each of us. Because given this reality of what we're living in, Each of us, and the Buddha acknowledges this, but in a slightly different way, has resorted to survival using defense mechanisms that enabled us to continue to live, but actually now don't serve us. So the shame and blame that I see inside of myself when I really open to it and trace it I find that actually at the root of it is a form of caring. 
that I'm actually trying to protect myself from what felt like an impossible load to carry. That that shame was a way to shut down. That the self-judgment was a way to shut down and defend myself. That my anger and my rage were actually ways to defend myself. I remember running away from home when I was 15 and um, hitching down to Cornwall because Cornwall if, um, in England had this kind of, it was like the artist community, you know, and it had that kind of, maybe like San Francisco was in the 60s, you know, it had this um, uh, reputation. And, and I was looking for something, and I was in a rage, and I was in a huge rage, and the only thing I could think of doing was to get out of my house as survival, and to to sort of live on the streets, partly as a statement of rage. But I, but I was also looking for something. And I could tell even then that in that rage of self-defense, I was searching for love. I couldn't name it then, but really I was searching for love. The Buddha acknowledges the search. He himself and his journey is a, that is that mythic journey of someone in search of love and in search of, of truth and in search of finding a way to hold what life gives us. And the, the tools that my parents gave me, which, which were... Um, <laughs> which were their own defense against their own pain, I inherited. And we all have inherited. We have all inherited those tools. And yet in the groups today, what I've encountered over and over again is the ways that we judge and blame ourselves as we become quiet and mindful in seeing, these, in seeing these defense mechanisms, in seeing the ways that we have called these um, um, uh, energies into our life as a way to continue to survive. The theme of this meditation retreat is, no, is forgiveness. It is no blame. No blame. There is no reason to blame ourselves for what we find inside of ourselves. There is no reason to blame. There is no reason to judge what we find inside of ourselves, but rather to acknowledge the reality of our history. This culture in particular is ahistorical. It doesn't talk about our history. It's like our history is made invisible. And that's the, um, part of a, it's part of a defended heart to make history invisible. In this uncovering of our hearts, we are acknowledging our histories and saying, 
of course this is there. Of course this is there. And what the tool of mindfulness gives us and why it's so beautiful is that it sees both things. It sees how at the root of this is that desire for happiness that the Dalai Lama says unites us all together, that every single human being wants to be happy. We want to be happy. And we find these energies inside of us which have been given to us and which we have used because we didn't have anything else. And we find them and we now have this capacity to see both things and to say, I want to be happy and I see that these energies inside of me, while in themselves are not um, evil or shameful, don't serve my happiness when I believe them and when I believe their storylines. The energies in themselves are okay. It is their storylines that we have identified with that don't serve us anymore. And it is this capacity to be mindful that allows us to see that. So, so when we sit, when we sit in this room and we, we see we see these energies, we are actually seeing all our ancestors. And the energies that have been passed on from one generation to another, in the same way that physicists and cosmologists say, that if we were to look into our bodies, we would see the beginning of the black hole exploding into the cosmos of planets and stars, that, that we each are living with that material. It isn't just biological and physical, it is cultural, it is social that we are living together. And the vision of socialism and Buddhism <laughs> is the vision of freedom, of also acknowledging in the midst of that inheritance that each of us is magnificent and has the capacity to awaken, to awaken to what is universal, what is universal. It's, it's that that I somewhere in one of the groups I was saying universal doesn't quite cut it for me, but beautiful does. And I know that's a femme expression. I was saying, well, beautiful's kind of a femme expression. I don't hear the Buddha saying it too much. <laughs> but but if that's what it feels. And here's the thing. We take the moment we're in and we project it out of this moment into the future in an idea and overlay our future with what we're feeling in the moment and think that's what our future is going to look like. It isn't. Because every moment that is lived inside of us, just like a river, 
it's never relived. It is never relived. It's like you can't step into the same river twice. No moment is ever relived. Our future is unknown. And we don't know at any point when the conditions are going to come together where our hearts and minds open into what is exquisite or magnificent or beautiful or even into what is phenomenal. Um, Maya Angelou, and I wish I had that poem with me and I thought I had brought it and I hadn't, but I, I just want to stand up for a moment because it's, you know, I can't remember any of the lines, but it's kind of like um, she says, she, she, I can just imagine her, she says, I am a phenomenal woman. <laughs> we are phenomenal. We are phenomenal. The Buddha says that. The Buddha says that and we have that capacity. And the tool for awakening us as phenomenal is this tool of over and over again of bringing that capacity to be present to our experiences, to be mindful and to be intentional. There are some people who have, for whatever karmic reason, have sort of entered into the stream of dharma and that stream has just kind of flowed a little more easily. That hasn't been true for me. It's true that, like Larry said, I came to the Dharma out of great suffering. I, I was suicidal in my 20s. I did not know how to carry that pain that was given to me. Or I thought I didn't. And I was actually, I've never told anyone this, I was actually in the middle of an overdose taking these pills. And there was this voice that came up and said, I don't want to die. And I was like, what do you mean you don't want to die? I do want to die. <laughs> I'm taking these pills. And there was this voice that no, you don't want to die. You want to kill your father. And I say that because my father was an abuser. And it was actually profoundly liberating because I realized that I was defending myself from my anger and that actually my anger was healthy. And that that anger began to be channeled into trying to find a way to hold it and it was the beginning of my spiritual journey. First it was Marxism and anger at capitalism, then it was feminism and anger at patriarchy, and um, then it was coming out as queer and um, um, anger, um, anger with straight people, <clears throat> and then it was the Dharma. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm, 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 and I
when I'm saying this, because I really want to give you a sense of my own journey, because it's representative of all our journeys. And and I and I and I met my teacher Ruth and had a terrible time with my first few retreats. And I thought, oh, forget this. I can't do it. I, I can't do it. But something called me back. And then on my fourth retreat, I was sitting in, in the meditation hall after a Goenka retreat. And it was very relaxed. Ruth brought her dog into the meditation hall. And it wasn't that quiet, so she, we would be sitting there, you know, breathing in. I know I'm breathing in. And there would be, shh, hunt, shh because she's German, be quiet, and so because of making all the sense, shh, shh. and the dog is coming along the floor into the meditation hall, the door is banging back and forth, and in that moment, it was so ordinary, my mind just opened, and Magnificence and beauty manifested. That opening was actually the beginning of uncovering the memories of what happened in my childhood. And I have then worked diligently through for 20 years, diligently trusting deeply in that vision of magnificence and beauty and calling over and over and over again that courage and that strength and forgetting and getting lost and then calling it, maybe because you are sitting in front of me and remembering that because you are sitting I can call that capacity too. Maybe it is just that touch of magnificence that finds its little, little hook back to hook me into remembering. And I remember again to become... And the picture isn't here, but it is in the council room. This Manjushri figure, you know, on a horse with the sword. You know, have you seen those pictures? So there's Manjushri on the horse or some other, uh, some, uh, other um, Tibetan figure with a sword. And it is our sword. It is actually our heart of wisdom and love manifesting as, as a sword that says, cut the storyline that tells you you are too small and that you do not belong in this world cut the storyline. It is not true. And all the great teachers tell us that same thing. Cut the storyline. It is not true. To see that the storyline has its grips on us takes this diligent practice of coming back over and over again to the present moment to see what's happening. Unless we are present, we can't see it. If we don't see it, we can't cut it. This process of freedom and liberation depends on this incredible diligence 
over and over and over again of cutting what doesn't serve us. So, um, so I actually kind of went off and didn't talk about some of what I was going to talk about, but that's okay. <laughs> So then maybe let me just finish by acknowledging that there is this intention to be present, to notice our body, to notice our breath, to notice sounds, to learn to be present. To learn to love, to love how we are in each moment. One of the things when I have been most lost that has been my raft that has kept me alive is the understanding of the law of karma. Karma is this law that says every intention actually has a consequence and will not be lost. If we want to build our future, The Buddha says, understand the law of karma. And the law of karma says that if I can just intend, I am changing the course of history. Even if I can't be mindful, I can intend to be mindful. Even if I can't love, I can intend to love. Even if I can't be patient, I can intend to be patient because every intention actually will manifest as as those very qualities that I have intended. So in the places of, of dissociation, when I couldn't actually be mindful, I spent my life intending. Over and over again, I said, I can't, I can't connect. I can't quite feel myself right now because I'm in a new wave of uncovering. But I want you to know, Arena, I intend to. I intend to and I want you to know I want to love you. I want to meet this with caring and compassion. I want to meet it with patience. I want to, and I won't know and don't know when those seeds flower, but they do flower in the most unexpected places and ways, like when that dog came clicking in through the meditation hall. We don't know when all those things come together. We do know, and the Buddha says it is the great law of the universe of the mind just like gravity is the law of the universe of the physical world, that our intentions will bring consequences. You always have your intentions at your disposal. Always. So um, I'll end with this Dharma talk from Pablo Neruda, such a beautiful being. This time is difficult, 
wait for me. We will live it out vividly. Give me your small hand. We will rise and suffer. We will feel. We will rejoice. So let our difficult times stand up to infinity with many hands and many eyes. Joy, after all. So let's sit for a moment. Allowing the many hands to hold us, the many presences, allowing our hearts, the big heart of the Mother Earth, to be held in this great intention to hold our lives and our pain with love. Let us hold our hands together and stand up. With many hands and many eyes, joy after all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.